Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16, either your physical Bible, your electronic Bible, the Bible in front of you, or if you pulled out the bulletin insert that has the notes for the sermon, you will find our focal passage there as well. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, The Spotlight of the Spirit. The Spotlight of the Spirit. We're going to be considering a passage that is one of the most extensive passages in all the Bible describing the nature and the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and my prayer is and has been this week and even this morning was that our understanding and comprehension of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does would expand in our own personal lives but also in our life as a congregation and as a church. My prayer has been to invite the Holy Spirit today, as we just sang about, to reveal to our minds from his word who he is and what he does, and that he would work in our families and in our communities. Uh, going into the summer of 1977, I was eight years old on the cusp of becoming a third grader, and a brand new movie had just come out the name of the movie, Star Wars. And like a lot of other eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds, I was absolutely captivated by Star Wars. That summer, I saw it several times and uh, totally enjoyed it. Um, it's, I started then, of course, collecting all kinds of things connected to Star Wars, as most uh, little boys do. Started out with just a poster, but then it expanded to the full line of toys being marketed. I had the X-Wing fighter that Luke Skywalker flew. I had the Millennium Falcon that Han Solo and Chewbacca flew. And I even had Darth Vader's TIE fighter. You can see it there. But in addition to that, I also had a cross-section of the Death Star. I got this for Christmas. And this cross-section of the Death Star had three levels where you could reenact different scenes from the movie, like the trash compactor with the trash monster that was trying to eat the, the, the heroes, or where Luke and Princess Di, or Princess Di, Princess Leia, not Princess Diana was not in Star Wars, the, Princess Leia swung across the rope there. And so I would interact with those toys quite a bit, and I actually even had the full line of action figures that were available of course, my older brothers would tease me and they say, Troy plays with dolls. I said, they're action figures. They're not dolls. Big difference. What's the difference? I don't know, but they're action figures. Well, one of those characters was Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi was this aged Jedi who had the unenviable task of training young, rambunctious Luke Skywalker. They needed Luke to lead out in the rebellion against the dark side, in the rebellion against the empire. And what Obi-Wan, excuse me, yeah, what Obi-Wan Kenobi was training Luke in was the ways of the force. In fact, I want you to show you how he defined the force to young Luke. He says the force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. And the reason I wanted to show you Obi-Wan Kenobi's definition of the force is because this very definition is what many Christians understand about the Holy Spirit. They believe this is, in essence, how the Holy Spirit works or what the Holy Spirit is. I know this is the case 
Because in a recent study by, done by Ligonier Ministries in partnership with Lifeway Christian Resources, they did their annual State of Theology in America survey where they asked all kinds of theological questions. They would poll two sections, the general population, and then those who identified as Bible-believing, born-again Christians. They had to answer a series of questions which identified them, these are born-again Christians. And one of the questions on the survey was this. You had to agree, disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree. Here was the statement. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Now again, what's the response, not of the general population, but of self-identified evangelical Christians? Here's the results. You'll notice there, by the way, the correct answer is strongly disagree. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. But amazingly, 9% of Christians weren't sure. And 20% somewhat agreed with the statement. And 31% of Christians strongly agreed that the Holy Spirit is simply a force but not actually a personal being. This is the state of theology in America. Again, the answer is strongly disagree. This is not the force like Obi-Wan Kenobi or the George Lucas who developed the Star Wars universe, universe, very influenced by Eastern religions, had this kind of pantheistic or panentheistic view of God and reality. So this morning, my goal, based on the Bible passage we're going to be studying today, is to really give an introductory understanding of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We're going to consider the Bible's description of two things, his nature and his work. His nature, who he is, and his work, what he does. And we're going to discover this as we break down the passage that, that Jesus gives and speaks to these 11 disciples. Literally, hours before Jesus is hanging on the cross, he gives these instructions to the 11 who remain. Look with me in your Bible at John 16, beginning in the middle part of verse 4. The Bible says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, before we break down this passage before us, I do feel it's necessary 
on the one of the two planks I'm seeking to do today, the nature and the work, who he is and what he does. I'm going to focus the first kind of introduction here on the nature of the Holy Spirit, uh, who he is. And most of that, we're going to look at a cross-section of the Bible, not just our focal passage today. We're going to cover a lot of ground in our study of pneumatology this morning. That's the study of the Holy Spirit, of the pneuma. And so I've got some blanks on your outline. You may want to jot down some notes. We're going to go at kind of a breakneck speed here, so put on your seatbelt. Here we go. I want you to understand a couple things, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word for spirit uh, is really kind of synonymous in both the Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it's the word ruach. In the New Testament, it's the word pneuma, from which we get pneumatic, like a pneumatic device or pneumatic tool. Um, They both can be translated as well, wind or breath, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word holy is often put in front of the word ruach in the Old Testament or pneuma in the New Testament uh, to designate that this spirit being mentioned is the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit is God's power and the Holy Spirit is God's presence among his people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. In the Old Testament, we see this word ruach used about 90 times when it's designating specifically the Holy Spirit of God, his power or his presence. And there's several ways we see God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, active and working. We can see it in early as Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says after in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says in verse 2, the earth was formless and void and the spirit of God was hovering. So the spirit of God, this third person of the Trinity, was there at creation He was uh, accomplishing God's purposes. He was fulfilling God's plan in creation. Isaiah 63 tells us that uh, the Spirit of God is who led the children of Israel in their Exodus experience. So the third person of the Trinity was active and was there during the Exodus. Throughout the Bible, the Bible in the Old Testament describes the Holy Spirit of God coming upon people or even filling people for specific service or activity. Uh, In Exodus chapter 31, there's one individual by the name of Bezalel, and the Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit as an artisan. Any artisans in here? He was an artisan filled with the Holy Spirit. What for? To develop and to build and to craft all the different elements within the tabernacle so that the people could worship God in the way that God had described. He was filled with the Holy Spirit to do that specific task. Also, we find, for instance, the Holy Spirit comes upon the 70 elders uh, in Numbers 11. It comes on, he, excuse me, it, not it, he comes upon uh, Balaam in um, Numbers 24. He comes upon Gideon, upon Samson, upon Azariah, upon Jael, upon many others. In fact, the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as resting upon and then departing someone. For instance, King Saul, the Holy Spirit was upon him, and then the Holy Spirit departed after David's sin with Bathsheba, he writes in Psalm 51, his psalm of confession, uh, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, recognizing in that covenant the coming and the moving and the removal of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is actively present in the Old Testament, working in people, on people, through people in a variety of ways. But here's the th- something else about the Old Testament description of the, Old te- of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament looks forward to a time when the Holy Spirit 
and his work will be brought to a full and complete promised completion. When the Holy Spirit, who was just with the people and would come and go upon the people, they're looking forward to, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, a time, a season, an age, when the Spirit would be brought to his full, completed work in God's people. Uh, There are several about it, but there are three main prophecies concerning the coming work of the Holy Spirit and the full completion of the age of the Spirit. Joel chapter 2 describes and prophesies how the Spirit of God will come upon all people, not just one ethnicity, not just one nation, but the Spirit of God would come upon all people. Ezekiel 36 and 37 describes how he will dwell within God's people personally and permanently. And then Isaiah 11 is one of the other three major prophecies, which describes how there will be a spirit-anointed branch from the stump or the root of Jesse. This was the promise of an anointed Messiah. This was a promise of a descendant of Jesse, the father of David, a descendant of David, therefore, who would be the anointed, spirit-anointed Messiah. This spirit-anointed Messiah, Isaiah 11:2 says he would be filled with such things as wisdom, knowledge, insight, might, power, understanding, counsel, and the fear of the Lord. So what has been purposed, planned, and predicted in the Old Testament regarding the spirit, we can now see coming to fruition in the New Testament. And that's much of what Jesus is talking about and describing here in John chapter 16. You've heard me say these phrases before. What is in the Old Testament um, contained is in the New Testament explained. What is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. And so the word ruach is used some 90 times in the Old Testament to refer to the Spirit of God. In the New Testament, the word pneuma is used over 250 times much more talk about and description and explanation of the Holy Spirit. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 actually says that we are in the age of the Spirit. That's where we are. We're in the age of the Spirit and his work. What does that mean? These three prophecies, the prophecies of Joel, that his Spirit would come upon all people, the prophecy of Ezekiel, that he would dwell within uh, the people of God permanently, and the prophecy of Isaiah 11, that there would be a Spirit-anointed branch. These are all coming to be in the New Testament. So let's think a little bit more about the nature of the Holy Spirit as revealed in the Scripture, both the Old Testament and now in the New Testament. How are we to understand the Holy Spirit? First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. As such, the Spirit is not an it, but a he. Not an it, but a he. When we speak about the Trinity, we are speaking about the persons of the Godhead. Three persons, equal in essence, the same in power and glory. Uh, He has the essence of God. So God's being, God's godness, they are equal in rank. They are equal in authority. And they they are also equal and deserving of our service and worship. It's perfectly okay. And it's uh, to be encouraged to pray to God the Father to pray to God the Son, to pray to God the Holy Spirit, to worship God the Father, to worship God the Son, to worship God the Holy Spirit. They are equal as God and they deserve to be worshiped. We also refer to this Holy Spirit as a person uh, in the fact that he uh, does things that only people do, that only personages do, persons do. 
He is personal. He has all kinds of actions that are personal. Did you know that you can grieve the Holy Spirit? So the Bible says in Ephesians 4, he intercedes for us. That's something that a person, not a force, does. He testifies. That's what we see here in, in John. He has a mind. He thinks. He can be lied to, Acts chapter 5. He can be blasphemed. Oftentimes, I'll talk to people, even this week, I'm discipling a young man, a former wrestler at UTC, and, and uh, we have a Zoom meeting every week and reading through a book, and um, we were talking about this concept of the Holy Spirit, and he was asking me some questions, and I said, because the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force or a thing or a blob, when you receive the Holy Spirit at your conversion, you got all of them there was to receive. You don't receive part of him now and then get another part of him later. He's a person. I either have my wife as my wife or I don't have her. I don't just have her foot, right? I have all of her. When you, the Holy Spirit is a person and he functions and he acts like a person. Another thing about his nature, I've mentioned this, is that he is fully God. He is fully God. He demonstrates the power and the proclivities that only God can demonstrate. In the New Testament, we, re, we see him uh, referred to as God, just uh, a couple of examples in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied to uh, the apostles. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then a few, uh, uh, one verse later, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Well, which is it, the Holy Spirit or God? Yes, the Holy Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul tells the church, tells Christians, tells you, you are God's temple. Look at your body. You're the temple of God, right? Then a couple chapters later, he says, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we know the Holy Spirit is God, is God. It's used interchangeably. The, the titles, they are used interchangeably. He's equal with the Father and the Son, yet he is a distinct person. So, Quick review there of kind of a bird's eye view of the Bible's description of the nature of the Holy Spirit. But our focus for the rest of the message is going to be really from the text today. And as I mentioned, it's one of the most extensive passages in the Bible describing and detailing for us the work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does he do personally? What does he do in the church? What does he do globally? And there's really two aspects of his work that coincide with the two paragraphs of our passage today, his work. And I'm using the metaphor of a spotlight, a spotlight, right? There you go. This is funner than what you may imagine. Um, and I lifted this idea of the spotlight of the Spirit. I'm raising it up some so you can see me. Um, the spotlight of the Spirit. I'm lifting this concept from the very passage right here that we're going to look at. Really one word particularly that reveals this reality. So two things about the spotlight of the Spirit, his work, I want us to consider. The first one is this. Number one, a spotlight on the sin of the world. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does, his work, his function is to shine a spotlight on the sin of the world. Again, we see this in verses 4 through 11. And just by way of reminder, this is the upper room discourse. This upper room discourse began after the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, after the Lord said to Judas, what you're going to do, 
Go do it quickly. So then that instruction began, known as the Upper Room Discourse, from the end of chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and it concludes when Judas comes back. Judas comes back and finds Jesus and the other 11 disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, up on the Mount of Olives, and he's coming with a horde of soldiers to arrest Jesus. In between Judas's exit in the Upper Room and his return at the Garden, Jesus gives this mountaintop instruction known as the upper room discourse. Here's what's amazing about that. Not once, not twice, but five times, Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. I think it's pretty important. If in these final instructions that Jesus is giving to his disciples just hours before he'll be hanging on a Roman cross, if five times he describes the promise of the coming Holy Spirit, I think it's important for us to understand and to know about. Now, look at what Jesus says in verse seven. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's parakaleo in in Greek or paraclete in Greek, the the come alongside one, the helper, the advocate, the, um, the, the counselor will not come to you But if I go away, I will send him to you. It seems strange at first that Jesus says, it's good that I leave you. And they certainly wouldn't have thought that. They wouldn't have thought it's not good for him to leave us. But he says, it's better that I leave because unless I leave, you're not going to get the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the helper to come to you. Now, now why is this? Why is it better for Jesus to be gone and then the Spirit to come? Is this like... They can't be in the same place at the same time. I thought about our president and vice president. They don't ever fly on the same airplane because if there's a plane crash, we might lose them both. Now, some of you may be praying for that. Let's not pray for that. But if the president and vice president never fly in the same airplane because of national security, right? They can't be in the same place at the same time. Is that what's going on here? No, that's not what's going on here because here's what happens. It is not until Jesus's completed work, his death, burial, he was dead, his resurrection and ascension to majesty on high is not until that completed work that the new age of the spirit prophesied by Joel, by Ezekiel, by Isaiah, it wasn't until his completed work is done that this new age can be inaugurated. And we are in the new age of the spirit. Obviously, this would be hard for the disciples to understand at this juncture. Jesus, you're a friend. We left everything to follow you. We left our fishing businesses. We left the tax booth. We left everything to follow you, Jesus, for these three years up and down Galilee and into Judea and into Samaria. You're a savior. You're our Messiah. We anticipated you to be the one to renew the glories of Israel. They couldn't imagine anything worse than Jesus leaving. But Jesus says, it's better for me to go. It's better for me to go and to leave you physically, but for him to be with them spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say something to this effect, if I could have only seen Jesus, if I could have just witnessed his miracles, if I could have just been there to hear his profound teaching, If I could have shared a meal with Jesus, man, my faith would be so much more strengthened. I would ask you, how many people saw Jesus? 
heard Jesus, shared meals with Jesus, touched Jesus, thousands upon thousands, but most of them did not believe. Being with the physical Jesus did not strengthen their faith. But on the other side of Pentecost, Christ can be everywhere. His spirit can actually have more grace than for him to simply walk physically on the planet. In fact, look at this next slide. The Holy Spirit does not supplant the Son's absence. He completes the Son's presence. You see, if Jesus would have just stayed here, Jesus, as theologians describe it, when he was incarnated, when he took on human flesh, theologians describe it as veiling his divine attributes. Jesus is eternal, and as the eternal God, he is omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But when he veiled those divine qualities and took on human nature, Jesus could only be in one place at one time, just like you. So he's in one place at one time. But now he says the Holy Spirit is coming, and he can be everywhere omniscient and omnipresent. Now, let me illustrate it like this. Every human illustration breaks down whenever you try to use a human illustration to describe the divine, but this might help us come around the idea. There is in Washington, D.C., a, a place called the Library of Congress, the Library of Congress. And this Library of Congress in the United States Capitol is supposed to have a collection or record of every book published in our country. So every book that you buy has an ISBN number, and if you wanted to go find a particular obscure publication, you could find it, find record of it there in the Library of Congress. What you would have to do is you'd have to get a plane or drive to Washington, D.C. You'd have to get a badge. You'd have to go into that building. You'd have to go search and research to find that one publication. But I would say all of you have a device on your person that has that same information right? You have to look it up. You download it, find the hyperlink, click on it. You got it. So the internet is essentially everywhere. Thanks to Elon Musk and the star link that he's created. The internet is everywhere. And you can find all the world's information. We often joke that way. We'll ask a question. I wonder what's it. I wonder what it. And I said, well, if only we had a device that had all the world's information at our fingertips. Oh, we do. So Jesus could only be at one place at one time, but the Holy Spirit is everywhere. So what is that work of the Spirit? I want us to focus on, from this passage, one single word as we consider the work, and it's this word from which I lifted this concept and this idea of the spotlight of the Spirit. Look at verse 8 again. And when he, Jesus always used personal pronouns to describe the Holy Spirit of God, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I want you to circle that word convict on your Bible study outline or in your Bible. That word convict means convict in a judicial sense. It means to expose. It means to bring into evidence. It means to illuminate. It means to show by way of revealing. That's why I use the spotlight, right? The spotlight exposes, it reveals, it shows. It's a primary work of the Holy Spirit is to expose, to bring to light, and to illuminate. 
you know, if you, you are at home and the bright rays of the sun shine into your living room or into your bedroom upon your dresser or your nightstand or your coffee table, um, you can see all the dust that's there that was previously invisible, right? You're in your bedroom and everything looks nice and clean. You raise the blinds. Oh, this is a half an inch of dust on my dresser, right? This is what the light does. It exposes. And this is something like the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in the world and in our lives. He exposes. He brings to light three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, he then goes on to extrapolate out what he's talking about with the Holy Spirit exposing, convicting the world, bringing to light, shining a spotlight on sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's consider them together. I'm using these headings. First of all, he exposes wrong believing. Wrong believing. The Holy Spirit will convict and illuminate, verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Here, Jesus describes the fundamental, foundational root of all sin. They do not believe in me. Sin, at its most basic level, is disbelief in Jesus. Lack of faith in Christ. You may say, well, I thought sin was breaking the laws of God. Yes, 1 John talks about sin being law-breaking. Paul talked about it missing the mark. But Jesus himself said concerning sin, they do not believe in me. This is the heart of sin, unbelief, a refusal to trust in Jesus, a refusal to submit to Jesus, a refusal to um, recognize Jesus. Now, you may think sometimes that my sin is not really connected to my faith in Jesus. I still believe in Jesus. Now, I'm just kind of wandering. I'm making these bad choices. But I still believe in Jesus. No, you don't. It's not me saying it. That's Jesus saying it. When you sin, you're demonstrating your lack of faith in Christ. When I sin, I'm demonstrating my lack of submission to the authority of Christ. It's not just wandering a bit. It's not that, well, I still love Jesus. No. You're saying by your actions and by your, your attitudes, I don't believe in Jesus. Because if I believed in Jesus, I certainly wouldn't be doing this. We must realize this is what happens when we willfully choose to sin. It is tantamount to atheism. It is your heart or your expression saying, I do not believe in the moment Jesus is who he said he is and he can do what he said he can do. It's unbelief. And this convicting, exposing work of the Holy Spirit concerning sin in our lives and in the world, friend, it is grace. It is a grace of the Holy Spirit to shine his spotlight on our sinfulness. If you were here during VBS and went to the hospitality room that we all enjoyed, we regularly had donuts in there, right? And I love cream-filled, chocolate-covered donuts. And if I were to be in the hospitality room with you, and I was just chowing down on one of those donuts, 
and you looked over at me and I had this big hunk of cream on my whiskers, what's the most loving thing you can do? Go tell everybody else to look at the pastor with cream on his face? No, to let me know about it. You can do it a very kind way. You can open up the, phone app, the uh, camera app on your phone and say, hey, look at this, and I could see it, right? Another way you can do it, which is probably what I would do, you're saving that for later, right? So it is loving, it is gracious, it is kind to point out when someone has a problem, a flaw, a defect. This is loving and this is kind for the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts and say, you're not believing in Jesus right now. You're not trusting fully in Christ. Because unless the Holy Spirit does that in the ultimate sense, none of us could be saved. Because none of us see ourselves as we really are. We have to have the shades lifted by the Spirit of God and his shining light, those rays to come in and expose all that darkness. But not only does the Holy Spirit shine his spotlight on this wrong believing, but secondly, on wrong behaving. Wrong behaving. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. I want you to think about the quote-unquote righteousness of Jesus' day, the righteousness of the Pharisees, the righteousness of the religious leaders. It was a righteousness that was marked by greed. It was a righteousness marked by pride, by envy, by jealousy, by arrogance. It was marked by a a desire to keep the underlings in control by adding on all these rules and regulations. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came and he confronted all that quote-unquote righteousness. It was the righteousness of the Pharisees It was the righteousness of the religious leaders that eventually led to Jesus being crucified and going to the Father. Jesus confronted and Jesus exposed their flawed righteousness. And the Holy Spirit, when he comes, guess what? He continues to do that work. Jesus went to war with the false righteousness of the religious leaders. And friends, today, the Holy Spirit is doing the same work. He's confronting, he's exposing false righteousness. This is actually the only passage in the entire 21 chapters of John where this term righteousness is used. Only here, two times in this uh, section about the Holy Spirit. We know much of John's writing, he, he leaned on the Old Testament and particularly the prophet Isaiah. I happen to think that he may have had this Isaiah 64, 6 in mind. For all who have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Most of you are probably familiar with the King James Version, filthy rags. Those are menstrual cloths. Our righteous deeds, all the good that we think we're accomplishing, all the merit we think we're building up with God. Well, God, did you see me do this? Did you see me do that? Did you see what I did here? Did you see how I let somebody go in front of me when we were, uh, you know, merging there on the interstate? God, you're seeing all this, aren't you? Filthy rags. Your goodness, your morality, your ethics, your righteousness, garbage. And the Holy Spirit will come. And you think, I've done all this good, man. I'm pretty good guy. 
He says, garbage, filthy rags. He will expose and he will shine his spotlight on what you think is good about yourself. And Jesus is going to the Father. Therefore, the work that he has accomplished of exposing the garbage of their righteousness, he's now saying it's going global. It's not just going to happen in Judea and Palestine. The work of the Spirit is going global to expose this faulty righteousness. But then Jesus expands not only wrong believing and wrong behaving, but thirdly, wrong blaming. Wrong blaming. Verse 11, concerning judgment because of the ruler of this world is judged the world makes all kinds of moral and ethical judgments what is good and what is bad what is right what is wrong every time someone misquotes the bible don't judge lest you be judged i say you mean like you're judging me right now you're judging <laughs> the judgments of the world are wicked the world's judgment of Jesus' day was obviously twisted and completely distorted because the judgment of the most religious people was that Jesus, the innocent Son of God, should be killed. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus calls out the false judgment of the religious leaders. He points out their false judgment. Notice what he said in John 7. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You see, only Jesus and only the Holy Spirit judge with righteous judgment, with what is true judgment. The world's judgment is profoundly wrong and false and morally perverse. Why? Because the world lies under the power of the evil one. Because the world's judgments are influenced and impacted by the ruler of this world. And now the Spirit comes and continues the, the righteous judgment that Jesus inaugurated, and he will eventually triumph fully over the ruler of this world. This is the work of the spotlight of the Spirit. He comes to expose and convict and illuminate the world concerning sin, wrong believing, righteousness, what we think is righteous, wrong behaving, and judgments, wrong blaming. And friends, listen, don't miss this. Herein is the beauty of the gospel. You see, because in about five hours, Jesus will be hanging on that Roman cross. And in five hours, Jesus will be taking upon his own body the sin of the world, the unrighteousness of the world, and the false judgments of the world. And he takes that on himself so that he can offer to you all who repent of your sin and believe and trust in Jesus can have eternal life. Herein is the gospel. And friend, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that does that in our lives and in the world. So if you've been convicted, if you've been exposed, if you've been revealed, hallelujah. That's the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. So that's the spotlight of the Spirit on our sin, on the sin of the world. I want us to look at the second paragraph and the second area of his work. We won't spend as much time here, but it is equally important, and that is a spotlight on the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit, in his function and work today, 
is shining a spotlight on Jesus. He's throwing the spotlight on Christ. There are some things at this juncture on this Thursday evening that the disciples can't handle. They can't handle the truth. They can't. Jesus says as much in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. They're not ready at this point to receive certain aspects of the purposes of God in redemptive history. For one, they are, I would imagine, emotional wrecks. As I mentioned earlier, they've been living with Jesus, they've been following Jesus, they've been serving Jesus, and he's telling them very clearly, I'm going, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of evil men, they're going to crucify and kill me. They are emotional wrecks. They can't handle the truth, I think, because of that. But also, they can't handle the expansive truths that Jesus would tell them because this is before Pentecost. 53 days from this Thursday evening, they will be in Jerusalem, they will be in an upper room, and the Holy Spirit would descend on them and 120 believers with tongues of fire. And that sparks everything. That is the coming of the Holy Spirit. 53 days from here, they will then have the capacity supernaturally and the wherewithal because of the Holy Spirit to understand many things that Jesus would tell them, but they can't bear them now. And what will happen is on that day of Pentecost and beyond, the Holy Spirit will be shining his spotlight on the beauty, on the glory, on the magnificence of Jesus. He will do that by one, bringing to their remembrance, all that Jesus had taught them. They forgot a lot of things, but later the Spirit would remind them, oh yeah, Jesus said that. But beyond that, one of the things that Jesus is predicting and promising here is that the spotlight of the Spirit would reveal new realities and new truths to them, new revelation. What's Jesus promising? Nothing less than the writing of the New Testament. In fact, look at this next slide. What Jesus is describing and predicting here is the completion of the canon of the Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So at this point in human history, Jerusalem around 33 AD, the Old Testament canon, that word canon just means the completed, uh, recognized Bible passages and books, 39 books of the Old Testament, that canon of the Old Testament had been identified and recognized and agreed upon for over 400 years. The Old Testament canon closed. The Jews would not allow you to add anything else to the Old Testament scripture. Oh, you can write commentaries, rabbinical writings, but you couldn't add to the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now Jesus is saying, there's a New Testament coming. And he's speaking this to the 11 apostles the illuminating, inspiring work of the Holy Spirit will come upon them to write the New Testament. In fact, look at verses 13 through 15 again. This is uh, the promise of the process of illumination and inspiration. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all, definite article, the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. 
and he will declare to you the things that are to come, revelation. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, it is important to point out, just as the Old Testament canon, the 39 books of the Old Testament, were closed and recognized as closed, so too the canon, the collection of the New Testament, is closed. It closed at the end of the apostolic era. That was the era where these 11 apostles and the apostle Paul, who was one untimely born, and their, uh, those who function under the, the umbrella of their authority, they wrote down the Bible. They wrote down the New Testament. They wrote down the scripture. Once the, the apostolic era was ended, no more revelation. Which means, friends, the Quran of the Muslims is not inspired by God. Which means, friends, the Book of Mormon and the other two supposed scriptures of, of the LDS church, they are not inspired by God. Which means the writing of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society that the Jehovah's Witnesses look at every week, it is not inspired by God. In fact, I would let you know, uh, even the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church in their dogma, in their doctrine, sees two other sources of authority that are equal to authority of the Bible. What are they? Church tradition and the teaching of the magisterium, which is the teaching arm of the church led by the Pope. They consider the Pope to be infallible. They are not. They're not inspired by God. Only the New Testament, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, inspiring these apostolic writers that Jesus predicted and promised. So, what is the Holy Spirit going to do in his shining the spotlight on the sun through the revelation of the New Testament? Two things I want us to see as we move to in conclusion. Two aspects. First of all, there is an illumination of reality. There will be an illumination of reality. There have been many instances in my time as a youth pastor and a pastor where I've had someone in my office in a particular counseling situation, and they're telling me about some type of experience. One in particular, my grandma came and visited, my dead grandma. And I will tell them these words. Something can seem real, but that doesn't mean it's real. Something can seem true, but that doesn't mean it's the truth. I just said this about three weeks ago to somebody in my office. It may seem real, and you have all the emotions and the responses to it as if it is real. It ain't real. It's not true. It's not right. Here's what we need to realize. Satan has declared an all-out war on truth. He is the deceiver. He's the liar from the beginning. He's the evil one. God has his truth. Satan hates truth. And here's what the Bible does for us. Through the Spirit, he guides us into all truth. I hope you recognize in our world today, there is a war on truth. Do you see it? You see the war on truth, the war on God-designed reality? Right is what's wrong. Darkness is being called enlightened. Evil is being called good and beneficial for 
children? There's a war on truth. One example is the truth of Genesis. God created humanity binary. Male and female. He looked at his creation of a binary humanity and said, that is very good. But there is a war on this truth. You see it? Oh, there's not a binary existence of humanity. There are an unlimited numbers of genders that can be out there. That is Satan's work. And beyond that, Satan's work is deforming children. They're saying that's good. They're saying that's right. And if you pass legislation to stop it, you're the evil one. There's a war on truth. And the Holy Spirit comes and illuminates. This is true. This is real. This is right. Jesus will pray to the Father in the very next chapter. He prays for us in this room. Those who will believe because of the apostolic witness of the New Testament. Here's what he prays for us. Look at John 17, 17. Sanctify them. Make them holy. How? In the truth. Your word is truth. So the spotlight of the Savior, of the Spirit, will shine a light on what is true. Will shine a light on reality, exposing the lies of the evil one and exalting the Savior. But secondly, he will do this through the work of an illumination of the Redeemer. We need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit today. At the end of the day, the ultimate goal of the Spirit is to show off Jesus, to show off the Savior, to illuminate our Redeemer. He says at the beginning in verse 14, when promising the coming Holy Spirit, here's what he says his work will be. He will glorify me. This is Jesus talking. Well, that's kind of arrogant, Jesus. Not if you're the second person of the Trinity. The work, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit is to show off Jesus. Now, think about it. When Jesus was on the earth, he was, would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus' goal among his disciples was to reveal to them the Father. Now Jesus exits, the Holy Spirit comes. What does the Holy Spirit do? His goal is to show off the Son, to glorify the Son, to reveal the Son. You won't find anywhere the Son saying, Jesus saying, I'm here to show off the Spirit. It's the other way around. The Spirit is here to show off the Son. In fact, uh, he's illuminating like a spotlight, like a floodlight. I came across this um, quote from our Tuesday morning group that I meet with that we talk about the sermon and they tell me how bad my preaching is and then we look for other ways to improve it. And so one of, uh, actually Pastor Grady Davison brought up this quote from J.I. Packer. He's not with us today, but he was there and he made me aware of this quote and I'm gonna share it with you. Here's what J.I. Packer says in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. He writes, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, he shall glorify me. That's our passage today seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, 
The floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You're not in fact supposed to see where the light is coming from, but what you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. I'm so thankful J.I. Packer agrees with my sermon title. The Holy Spirit is the spotlight on the Savior of the world. Let me give you one more illustration. This is from my personal life, and with this, I'll close. When I was 13 or 14 years old, my older brother Carl, nine years older than me, he was dating the pastor's daughter of a local Pentecostal church. So on Sunday mornings, he would come to our small Baptist church, First Baptist Church, Waimama, Florida, and then on Sunday evenings, he would go with his girlfriend to their Pentecostal church. And as such, he began to be exposed to, let's just say, some manifestations that he had never seen or heard before. And these manifestations were being attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. So Carl began a diligent Bible search to develop a thoroughly robust theology of the Holy Spirit. He began reading and studying and cross-referencing and taking notes so that he could understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as such, he broke off his relationship with her because of their irreconcilable views about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, within, uh, shortly after that season, Carl and I were riding down the road in his truck out in the country somewhere. I don't even know where we were going, but we passed by this small church. And after we passed by, he said, Troy, did you see the name of that church on the sign? I said, yeah, I saw it. The Church of the Holy Spirit. And Carl said, that is an inappropriate name for a church. I said, well, that's a pretty bold statement. I said, well, Carl, I mean, there's the Church of God, Church of Christ, Church of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's part of the Trinity, right? He's saying he's no, no good. And he goes, the Holy Spirit doesn't bring glory to himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, hey, look at me. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Look how I'm moving. Look how I'm working. The Holy Spirit shines his light on Jesus, glorifies Jesus, magnifies Jesus, exalts Jesus. So how do we know if our preaching is spirit-filled? Is it emotional? I get emotional. It's spirit-filled if it's lifting up Jesus. How do we know if our singing is spirit-filled? You can leave and say, oh, that singing wasn't very spirit-filled. Did it magnify Christ? Then it's spirit-filled. How do we know if our ministries are spirit-filled if they are proclaiming the good news of Christ to our neighbors and to the nations? That is spirit-filled. Shining a light on the Savior. Well, as I close, let me ask you three questions real quickly just for application. Ask yourself these as it relates to the sending and gift of the Holy Spirit. First question is this, and really the most important I'll ask. Ask yourself, have I truly been born again by the Spirit of God? That's how Jesus describes it in John 3 to Nicodemus, born of the Spirit. That's regeneration, Titus chapter 2 and chapter 3. The work of the Spirit. This is the first question. 
Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Him exposing your sin and false righteousness and false judgments and magnifying the glory of Christ to your soul. Here's the second question to ask. Do I ask God through his Spirit to expose my sin? Sometimes people say, I don't feel like my sin, my, excuse me, I don't feel like my prayers are being answered. This is one prayer I guarantee you God will always answer. I prayed it 45 minutes ago, an hour ago. God, through your spirit, expose my wickedness. And he answered it. Pray this prayer. Pray this prayer. Here's the third question. Do I seek the Spirit's exposure of Jesus through the Bible? The Bible, all 66 books, the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, have for itself one hero, one subject. The Old Testament is not about Noah or Moses or Abraham or David. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is not about Peter and Paul and Mary. Sorry. The New Testament is about Jesus. The only way you'll get exposed to Jesus and love Jesus and grow in Jesus is through the Spirit's exposure of Jesus in your Bible you're holding in your hand. Are you interacting with the Scripture? James says, James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. We're about to sing about our good, good Father. And this is the good gift he's given us, church, the good gift of his Spirit. Here's my last thought. The Holy Spirit is a good gift from the Father and from the Son for every believer to know and experience.